Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Each and every week I have the pleasure of sharing with you words of Torah. We examine the parasha, the weekly section of the books of Moses, the five books known as Torah in Hebrew. And a guest joins me as we try and unpack some of the more challenging aspects of the Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is known as Bo, meaning uh, to come, and it refers to come to Pharaoh. And the term itself is found in Exodus chapter 10, uh, verse 1, uh, which is the start of our parashah and continues through uh, chapter 13, verse 16. Let me give you an overview of the parashah before I introduce our guest. The last three of the ten plagues are visited on Egypt. A swarm of locusts devours all of the crops and greenery. A thick and palpable darkness envelops the land. And all the firstborn of Egypt are killed at the stroke of midnight on the 15th of the month of Nisan, which is declared to be the first month of the Hebrew calendar. God commands the first mitzvah to be given to the Jewish people, separate from the mitzvot offered to Abraham and his descendants as individuals, to establish a calendar based on the monthly rebirth of the moon. The Israelites are also instructed to bring a Passover offering to God, a lamb or kid or goat to be slaughtered, and its blood sprinkled on the doorpost and the lintel of every Israelite home, so that the Eternal should pass over these homes when he comes for the final plague, the killing of the firstborn. The roasted meat of the offering is to be eaten that night with unleavened bread, which today we call matzah, and bitter herbs. The death of the firstborn finally breaks Pharaoh's resistance, and he literally drives the children of Israel from his land. So hastily does the Torah tell us that they depart, that there is no time for their dough to rise, and the only provisions they take along are what is known as unleavened bread. Before they go, they ask their Egyptian neighbors for gold, silver, and garments, fulfilling the promise made to Abraham that his descendants would leave Egypt with great wealth. The children of Israel are commanded to consecrate all their firstborn and to observe the anniversary of the Exodus each year by removing all leaven from their possessions for seven days eating the unleavened bread, and telling the story of the redemption to their children. And the Torah portion ends in a somewhat unique way in that it reminds them that they are supposed to wear what tradition has identified as tefillin, boxes uh, in which the sacred texts are uh, contained on their arm and head as a reminder of the exodus and their resultant commitment to God. 
It is, as many of you know, a Torah portion with uh, many known stories and some unknown aspects of Israelite history. With me this morning to discuss the parasha is Rabbi Joe Klein, who was ordained in 1975 from the Cincinnati campus of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion with a master's of Hebrew letters. And he served as rabbi of congregations in Terre Haute, Indiana, Chattanooga, Tennessee, before becoming the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in Oak Park, Michigan in 1997. And he served that congregation until retiring in 2013, at which point he was designated rabbi emeritus of Temple Emmanuel. Since his retirement, Rabbi Klein is the visiting rabbi at the Gross Point Jewish Council. He is currently adjunct faculty in the Religious Studies Program of Oakland University and Rochester University, and teaches October to May in the Metro Detroit Jewish Federation Adult Education Program. While in Indiana and in Tennessee, he was adjunct faculty in Humanities at Rose Holman Institute of Technology, Indiana State University, and the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. As you can tell from this brief um, biography, Rabbi Klein is well positioned to offer us some insights into the Torah. And so I want to uh, welcome him to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Uh, Rabbi Klein, good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. Um, so this week's Torah portion begins with the final plagues, um, which um, the nine of them that precede the famous last plague are certainly very different um, in their intent. So why don't we begin by discussing the plagues and how these nine plagues uh, find themselves different from the last plague? Well, uh, they are qualitatively different. There's no death in any of the, no death mentioned uh, in any of the other plagues. Uh, so the, the fact that there is death and, it, and it's death of people certainly makes it different. There have been a lot of, over time, a lot of questions and commentary on these nine plus one uh, plagues, um, uh, not to men uh, it, only to mention a few, uh, in two of the Psalms, in, in the collection of Psalms, uh, there are the, the plagues are mentioned, but there are only eight of them. Why are they only eight? Uh, why do the 10 plagues use three different verbs to describe what happens to Pharaoh's heart? The text says strengthen and, and harden and heavy. Uh, there are, have been attempts to explain the plagues naturally as natural events, um, even as celestial events. Uh, there has been commentary on uh, uh, maybe these plagues are symbolic of attacks on the different Egyptian gods, the, the ten Egyptian gods, if that's what this is about. So there, there's been a lot of discussion over the years among readers and scholars about what do we do with these plagues, but what interests me most about this 10th plague, uh, in addition to its being qualitatively different, it um, 
leaves me with a, a real serious question. Uh, in the first nine plagues, um, uh, blood frogs, lice, beasts, blight, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, in each of those nine plagues, the Israelites are exempt. They, God does not bother them with, with uh, frogs in their beds and uh, blight and boils. God, God knows where they are. Uh, God exempts them. So why in the 10th plague does God say, <clears throat> paint your lentils with blood so that I'll know where you are? How, how, what sense does it make that for nine plagues, God ex knew, knew where the Israelites are, uh, but for this plague, um, uh, God, all the, uh, for some reason, doesn't know. Uh, so if the painting of the lentils over the doors in blood, if it's not for the divine, then for whom is this exercise meant? And let me just um, remind our listeners that um, the Torah is clear that the previous nine plagues, um, which appear to impact all of Egypt, um, the impact on the Israelites is either directly identified as negligent, negligible, or um, is unspoken of, which leads us to believe that they were patur, free from all of this. So a simple reading of the text, as Rabbi uh, Klein has begun to offer us, um, leads to this important question. Why is the 10th plague so different? Yeah. Um, why are the Israelites included to such a degree that a marking has to take place? And um, I know that you have an interesting take on uh, the answer to this question, though there are many traditional answers. Um, please share with our listeners your interpretation of this. Yeah, I, I, to, to what extent this is my own, I'm not sure, but I think it is. Um, I, I'm reminded in this reading the story the tenth, of the 10th plague, I'm reminded of what happened in Genesis chapter 22, the story of God telling Abraham to take his son Isaac up to a mountain and offer him there as an offering. In that story in Genesis, uh, God also averts the death of a firstborn with a sheep that is offered in his place. And in Genesis 22, at the last minute, God, so to speak, passes over Isaac as the offering and demonstrates, points out this ram, sheep, that's a replacement for the boy. So in each of these two stories, even though they're, they're, they're completely different in, in different narratives, in, in completely different places, in each story, a firstborn, the firstborn are at risk. In each story, uh, the firstborn is released uh, with a, the substitute of a sheep. In each story, God's action doesn't make sense. So talking about Genesis 22, why, why does God's action not make sense? Because in Genesis, prior to chapter 22, God told Abraham four different times that his son with Sarah 
would inherit the covenant, that, that his son would be the progenitor of generations to come. Uh, God had already declared four times to Abraham uh, that the covenant would be passed through Isaac. So why then does God tell Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice? And uh, I suppose parenthetically, we might ask the question, having heard God's promise, why does Abraham so uh, innocently walk to make this sacrifice? Willingly. Willingly go. Um, And while um, some people offer um, unusual conversations, you've identified um, certainly one of the major reasons should, that we should ask what's going on. Right. Since Abraham already has a promise and we had the story of Ishmael who's been um, removed from any uh, competition from the birthright, even though he was the firstborn uh, based on patrilineal descent. So that's a really interesting analysis. Um, why does God do this? And perhaps you can offer your own opinion about why Abraham doesn't respond with great surprise. Yeah, he, he, his, his immediate response is he gets up early in the morning to go do it. Right. The first, that's the first thing we see. So thinking, putting myself in Abraham's head, Abraham thinks to himself, either God is not telling me the truth about Isaac's future. God's promise of generations, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea coming through Isaac, that's, that's just not true. So either God is not telling him the truth about Isaac's future, or God is not going to let Abraham kill his son. Abraham says to himself, it has to be one or the other. And since the ultimate action is in my hands, Let's see, let's see what God is going to do. So Abraham, he doesn't argue with God. He says, all right, I think he says in his head, all right, let's just see uh, which is true. So interestingly enough, that chapter 22 begins with the verses, and God tested Abraham, but you're suggesting we should read it the opposite way. Yes. That Abraham tested God. Precisely. That's exactly what I'm saying. I, I think God is also testing Abraham to see how he's going to react. I do think it's a mutual test. God wants to see what Abraham's going to do with this. Um, and uh, so here, in, let's pick it up with Exodus. Um, why does God ask uh, the, the Hebrews or the Israelites to mark their doors? I think that the message in both Genesis 22 and in the 10th plague, I think we're talking about a message to the reader. I think this is all about us, that the text is telling us that even though we are in covenant with God, even though we have a relationship with God, even though we have received the promises of being uh, uh, as a result of being in covenant with God, we still have responsibility to act in the right way. That we should not depend upon God because of the promise to rescue us even though uh, we're in covenant with God. We're still required 
to take an active choosing role. It's not enough for us to say, well, God's going to take care of me. I don't have to do anything. So we have to take, I think the message to us is uh, an active choosing role in our redemption, in our salvation, however we understand the end uh, the end promise of, of our covenant. Well, it's, it's um, certainly a message that um, Judaism has offered to those in covenant from the very beginning, perhaps in different ways, but you're suggesting that here, even before um, the Ten Commandments, and even before some of the more obvious uh, commandments known as mitzvot, this episode in which God tells the Israelites to mark their doorposts is like telling Abraham to take his son. It's not because God doesn't know the end result or that God doesn't know the addresses of all the Israelites in Egypt, but rather God asks the people to take a step forward and actively identify themselves as um, participants in the covenant. Yeah, but and look at the, what they are asked to do in Exodus. They're, they're told to kill a, a, a lamb, smear its blood over the doorpost. If that's not an active act demonstrating uh, the God that I'm in covenant with for, for, for the neighbors, for the community, if that's not an active statement of belief, uh, I don't know what is. Um, uh, you know, I, I was taught a long time ago that the word belief must mean live by or it doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, that before they set out on their journey, they're making a commitment, a commitment to follow this God because they certainly aren't going to stay in the neighborhood anymore, having smeared blood all over their doorposts. Well, and they're also going to survive. Yes. Well, they, they hope they will. Right. But if they act in, um, out of belief, or as you suggest, the dual notion that belief requires acting, they have a, an opportunity to avoid the punishment uh, met out to the Egyptian firstborn. Yes. Um, and so this is, um, and again, I think it's a fascinating um, insight because it's even before Sinai. At Sinai, the text tells us that they stood at uh, the mountain and um, in whatever manner and form we want to understand the revelation, they made a statement of acceptance. But this is, uh, truthfully, um, um, we're reading chapter 10, and the Ten Commandments takes place in chapter 20. Um, so we now have uh, 10 chapters of Torah pre prior to this, in which they um, make a choice to actualize um, their covenant, and whether it's out of fear or whether it's out of um, belief and assent to the power of Adonai, as explained in the text, um, 
they're required to do something, not to sit passively by, which, as you've suggested, is one of the hallmarks of um, Jewish uh, religious life. Yeah. In fact, I would say that, um, you know, in in the New Testament, we we have uh, this debate uh, between uh, uh, Paul and Jesus's followers whether God wants belief, uh, works, or 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 faith, um, and the church ultimately says we need works and faith. Uh, it, it seems to me that um, our, our faith. Our commitment, our identification within our own faith, be it Judaism, Christianity, Islam, only has value when it is affected within community, when it, when we stand up, as you said before, when we go forward, when we step into our responsibilities of Jews. Uh, we have a, a, a statement that is relatively well known uh, within uh, the Jewish community. Uh, though we may believe that everything is dependent on God, we must act as if everything depends on us. Um, and I, th- I think that's, I think that's a, a, a fundamental, uh, um, a, a fundamental uh, a platform upon which we stand as members of a faith community. As we've spoken about this, I'm reminded that the episode that we're talking about is um, known as Passover, from the Hebrew Pasach, that God passed over the homes of the Israelites, having watched the uh, blood be placed on the door, or at least um, watched the Israelites actively accept the challenge to do so. Um, I'm wondering given how you've identified the importance of this event, whether the, um, Passover is usually identified as the festival that most Jews, regardless of their religious practices, affirm. And I'm wondering if that um, historical um, pattern of um, doing something manifests itself today. So even if um, Jews don't go to synagogue or they don't wear outward clothing of the tradition um, or they don't belong to a synagogue, they have some sort of Seder, some sort of Passover observance, which um, affirms everything that you've spoken about. Um, it has a, a huge historical impact on the um, lineage of the Jewish people. Uh, yeah, it's the one thing that it's the one thing that most Jews do. Uh, if, if they do nothing else, it's the one thing that they they find a way uh, to observe Passover, whatever that means. Uh, but observe Passover. Uh, and uh, for many people, for many families, particularly Passover uh, is the, the most important family gathering. Um, uh, I mean, so often congregations will host large Passover uh, seders, uh, Passover dinners. Um, 
it's, it's, it is a significant statement in and of itself. That's really wonderful insight. And I hope our listeners have been able to follow the wonderful reasoning of Rabbi Klein, who has helped us to understand um, how the very fabric, the beginnings of the Jewish people in Genesis 22, the original Jew, Abraham, and his uh, uh, story um, about sacrifice is replicated in um, a similar motif in uh, Exodus 10. Um, I want to thank Rabbi Klein for joining me this morning and for offering these insights. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten saying thank you for being with us. You can find a broadcast of our show on CHRI 99.1 FM or on the chri.ca website or on iTunes or on YouTube. For my guest, Rabbi Joe Klein and myself, I wish you shalom and a good day. <laughs>